So we have a lot to get to, including uh, Duke's non-league home winning streak that reached 130 games earlier this week. Meantime, West Virginia created 40 turnovers in a 40-minute game. That's rare. Uh, we're going to preview this weekend's uh, showdown on CBS. That's America's most watched network. It's the network of stars uh, between Kentucky and UCLA at Rupp Arena. But let's start with, if you don't mind, Norland, a big game from Wednesday night. Indiana 76, uh, North Carolina 67, Hoosiers. That's Tom Crean's Hoosiers. Dealt UNC its first loss of the season. And Matt Norlander, you used this opportunity to argue with Scott Van Pelt. Why are you arguing with Scott Van Pelt? It's not an argument. It's a healthy discourse. Felt like an argument to me. When I woke up and saw it, it felt like an argument. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was fun. I gave him a heads up on the I, – I, I you know, slid into his DMs. I said, hey, listen, man, you said something on your Sports Center show that allowed me to kind of launch off with a column. So – I will uh, I'll at mention you and, you know, if I'm going to call you out, I'll, I'll let you know. And then uh, basically what he had said, you know, he, he had a throwaway comment that I took as means to establish a thesis in my column. And that, you know, he basically said, great game. Does it mean anything? No, but it was really fun. And my deal is, no, it actually does mean something. And it is weird how people continue to only fixate on college basketball and what the games mean in the regular season. You never hear people discussing that with Major League Baseball, which has, you know, three times the inventory with football, which naturally will have more meaning because the schedule is more condensed. But you never hear it with hockey, never hear it with, you know, soccer or anything. It's always just college basketball. What does it mean? Um, It does have legitimate meaning because what will happen and this happens every single year is that a lot of folks who will kind of just be like, yeah, but what does the game mean when they say that now when we get to Selection Sunday and people will either, you know, chastise or congratulate the committee, they're going to go back and they're going to cite big wins or bad losses that happened on the schedule. And invariably, so many of those will have come in November and December. They clearly have meaning. Indiana specifically has a lot of meaning because now Indiana has the two best wins of any program in the country. There's no one that's really, truly close because Indiana's beaten Kansas and Carolina. Those are two 10 top 10 Kempom wins. No one else can claim the same. And it it very legitimately puts Indiana on a track to a number one seed. And that has meaning because data undeniably shows that the better your seed, the better you'll do in the tournament. Now, one hand feeds the other there because obviously the higher seed you are, the better you should be and invariably the better you should do. But it also allows you to face worse competition as you go through the bracket. And so that has also some serious impact overall. So a huge win, a very fun game. You can just enjoy the game on face value. And by the way, I definitely did because that place looked amazing on Wednesday night. Assembly Hall was rocking, as it always is when it gets up for a huge opponent. I know we're going to get to Roy's comments afterward. But it showed me that Indiana's offense, which I wouldn't say is necessarily set up to be absolutely reliable game in, game out, and we saw some of that with its Fort Wayne loss. But when it's really going, and you've got Thomas Bryant like stepping out for corner threes, and they run so much positionless stuff, I think that its offense can keep up with any team in the country. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a huge win. We both said that we thought Indiana would win. Uh, Carolina got really just slapped in the face to start that game, and I think that was a huge determining factor because they crept back as it came along. 
but a big time win for Indiana. And they certainly, I know Wisconsin got a nice win over Syracuse, but, but right now, you know, it just does, it looks like Indiana is set up to be the best team in the Big Ten. And if they win the Big Ten combined with these wins, they've got two more important ones still coming on the schedule here, um, both actually in Indianapolis. They've got the Butler and the Crossroads Classic, and they've got Louisville also on a neutral in Indianapolis. All they got to do is split that, GP, in my opinion. You split that, you'll have three really, really good wins against teams that are likely to be terrific seats in the tournament. And if you can manage to win the Big Ten, you'll end up with a, with a top seed on Selection Sunday, and that's why I think last night's win has a lot of meaning. All right, a lot to unpack here. I guess um... – I don't want to speak for Scott. I, I, I assume the point he was making is like, uh, no matter what happened in that game last night, everything is still on the table for Indiana or North Carolina. That's sort of the nature of college basketball. Like Indiana could have lost last night and still, you know, theoretically ended up with a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. North Carolina could have, well, they did lose last night and they could still theoretically end up with a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. Um, and so in that sense, like, what is it really? You know, how much does it matter? I'm not sure. Except your point is also true, which is um, a, a win doesn't guarantee anything for Indiana, and a loss doesn't eliminate any possibilities for North Carolina. But the win does help Indiana uh, toward its goal of getting a one seed, and, the, and a win would have helped North Carolina toward its goal of getting a one seed. If they had a November victory at Indiana on Selection Sunday, I, I assure you that is something that would be mentioned on Selection Sunday if they were in contention for a number one seed. And so I, I think big picture, uh, there is nothing that happens in November that has an absolute effect on anything that happens in March. But the, the details do matter, and, and that, that could be a win for the Hoosiers last night that um, helps them get – a particular seed on Selection Sunday, and if it would have been for North Carolina, uh, a victory. And on Selection Sunday, they're in contention for a one seed. Uh, it would have been a victory that would have been mentioned. So um, I, I think your point's accurate. Where you're also right is it is interesting, and I, I don't know that I've ever really observed this, except I do know it happens in bas college basketball all the time, but you don't hear it that often with the other sports. You're exactly right. Like Friday night, uh, the Bulls and the Cavaliers are playing. And somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. What is it? Parrish, what does it mean? I know. Like, nobody's going to say that. You know, people are going to watch it and LeBron's going to, you know, do something great or, or you know, Dwayne Wade's going to hit a shot, you know, in LeBron's face. And, you know, everybody's just going to enjoy it and, and, and retweet it. And nobody's going to take a step back to say, yeah, okay, fine, fun game. But, like, what does it matter? What does it mean? Who cares? Like, it, it's just it's, – it's true. I mean, it's, it's even more true in the NBA because there's 82 games and, and eight teams in each conference make the playoffs. It's, it's more true. I, I think you can actually say this. No matter what happens Friday night in that Bulls-Cavaliers game, Cleveland's going to be the one seed in the East. It will literally have no effect on the Cleveland Cavaliers season. So it means even less, and yet you're right. Nobody will take the time to, to say that. So I definitely I, I hear where you're uh, you're coming from um that that was a, that's an interesting observation why are folks compelled to you know you know where else this this is true about college basketball and by the way i'm not the college basketball guy who tries to tell you college basketball is the best thing on the planet and neither am i by the way yeah. i just i feel like occasionally no, but, they, but those people exist they do exist and before and, you just, and, i want i want to also just say real quick like i i totally enjoy and love college football and they're two different things and we don't always have to compare them but at the same time like you know, there are so many games that when you get to November in college football, just completely lack meaning altogether. And you really don't hear much about that as well. So 
this isn't you know just a college basketball yeah, no, specific that, issue. So it's just it's just worth pointing out from time to time. That's no, that, all. Go that, ahead. That, that, my point was you also hear this in college basketball all the time. Like, oh my God, you watch the NBA and then you watch college basketball and it's like it's like two different sports. Well, like what happens when you watch Major League Baseball and college baseball or the NFL and college football? You know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, like why? Is oh, without it, a doubt. Yeah. I mean, we all everyone listening to this podcast has friends that love college football, but they've absolutely got friends that can't stand college football because it's nothing like what they see with the NFL, which is a different game like that exists without a doubt. No, I like but I don't hear people on Saturdays. Except for with the hashtag college kicker, and really these days it's like hashtag NFL kicker too. Um, right. I don't hear people on Saturdays going, "God, I can't even watch this," you know, because it's such a uh, a, 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 a substandard, uh, a, you know, quality of football. Like people just go, "Man, Ohio State, Michigan, that was fun." So you do get that with college basketball all the time, and I don't spend much of my time defending college basketball. Here's the truth. Because um, those college basketball writers and, and analysts, they exist. They try to tell you college basketball is the greatest sport in the planet, and it's just not. Um, it's not as good as the NBA. It's not as good as NFL. It's not as good as college football. I don't think it's as good as Major League Baseball. Like, it's, it's you know, but, but whatever. But, it, you know, I don't know why people are compelled to, to point that out um, as often as, as they do. Either the games don't matter or uh, the play's so bad because we don't really point it out about other sports. Let's move on. Um Afterward, Roy Williams, you know, always has some interesting comments in his post game. Uh, this was seemed to be a little directed at the North Carolina fans in a very passive aggressive way. He said, um, "The crowd was amazing, which it was. I've been to Assembly Hall. It is amazing. It's one of the great venues in college basketball, and I would love to have that kind of crowd in the Dean Smith Center um, for for every game and not just the freaking Duke game." Uh, it's not hard to figure out what he's saying. Um, man, our crowd sucks relative to what we just witnessed here. <laughs> and, um, and and here's the interesting thing. Most North Carolina fans who have tweeted me about it, and I'd, be, I'd be interested to hear uh, the reaction you've got. They agree with Roy. They say, yeah, yeah, it's not great. And I will say, I've been to the Dean Smith Center. I've been to Allen Fieldhouse. I've been to Cameron Indoor. I've been to Assembly Hall, Pauley Pavilion, Rupp Arena. I've been to all of them. I mean, basically all of them. Um, there's nothing great about the Dean Smith Center. You know what's great about the Dean Smith Center? Walking in it. You, you walk in, you see the 23 up there, you see the national championship banners. That's cool. The actual game environment, there's nothing special about it. Like the game environment at Cameron is special. Game environment at Allen Fieldhouse, special. Game environment at uh, uh, Indiana, special. Game environment, I'll even say at the Kennel, the Gonzaga, special. Wichita State, Right. Like, special. Like Wichita State's awesome. I, I, there's nothing special or awesome about the game environment at North Carolina. And so while I, I, I think you can wonder why Roy took that opportunity to say that then, that's fair, I guess, although I don't mind it. Um, he's not wrong. You know, it, like if you're just, you know, I had somebody pose the question to me earlier, like, hey, you've been there. Is he right or wrong? Oh, he's right. What he says is true. And it seems like the, the, the most uh common explanation is that uh, the rich people sit close to the court and the they're there more to be there than they are to stand up and cheer and get loud and the atmosphere created is the atmosphere created from that yeah the interesting yeah so i love that he said this in a loss <laughs> uh against a blue blood like indiana um 
I, I agree with them. I think most fans do. And, and the frustration stems from the fact that, you know, there just there are too many people that are above 50 years old that are sitting close to the court. And that's that's not ageism. That's just a fact of life. When I'm 53, I'm not going to want to go nuts at a sporting event and and, you know, and, and break a sweat. I'll be I'll be tired and exhausted by halftime. The reason why college basketball, you mentioned, you know, just the product overall. One reason why I love college basketball so much is that the regular season environment in such close quarters can be so intense. And that vibe, it just bleeds through the television and into your living room so that when you watch a Carolina Duke game at Cameron, or you'll see a huge game at Gonzaga or hell, what we watched last night or hell, what we watched Nova at Purdue earlier this year. Right. There are really terrific. And why? Because those programs uh, rightfully and strategically have put their students right on top of the floor. It creates a legitimate home court advantage. It creates a legitimately terrific television product. And there are some places Nigel Hayes is trying to get. And I love I love the student section hashtag name, the Grateful Red. They're trying to get the Wisconsin students closer to the floor. They have this issue as well. Kentucky is interesting because it kind of has this issue, but the fan base is so intense and so devoted that Rupp doesn't totally have the same kind of problem Carolina has, even though it's it's kind of it doesn't have the the student vibe, student section effect. I will say that like I've been to Rupp many times. It's like you're in Rupp Arena. It's big and it's huge, right? Because I've never been in Rupp. It's just a massive cavern. Here's what I would say about Rupp Arena. It's big, but like okay, like in terms of the actual game experience. It's just whatever. You know, it's, there's nothing. It's just big. There's a lot of people there. Um, they all love their basketball team. But in terms of the actual game experience, it's it's not like Duke. It's not like Kansas. Um, it's not like Indiana. Right, without a doubt. And and so uh, props to Roy for for saying this. Now, the question is, does it, does it even do anything? Because honestly, like the people at Carolina should be taking notice. This isn't the first time that he's mentioned this, obviously. He's had random first. I mean, he's called out the fan base for leaving early during blowouts against cupcakes. And and while you can maybe throw a little bit at Roy for for scheduling like that, I, I'm going to reject that entirely because, one, you know, you have to have some buy games at home. We've talked about that plenty of times on the podcast before. Two, Roy actually schedules pretty ambitiously on a year-in, year-out basis, both true road games and stuff. So I'm not going to get on him whatsoever for the way he schedules. He, he's actually pretty good about it for a guy that, w- that doesn't even necessarily have to do it that way. The powers that be at North Carolina really should start listening to the younger part of its fan base, its coaches, its players, and for the betterment of the program, it should really consider trying to get some sort of different seating arrangement going, you know, starting next year or the year after at the latest, because truthfully, it would benefit. And those kind of things, like, it might seem small to Carolina, and I get that there are people that want to sit in the first three rows that have probably donated tens of thousands of dollars. I understand that. I feel there's got to be some sort of balance, though, because if you want to make the Dean Smith Center an environment, a place where it lands on, you know, the top 10 list of places you've got to see college basketball games, because it's not there. Like, for example, GP, like I'm going to go to Carolina Duke this year at Duke. I've never seen a game. And I specifically waited in the rotation because I because you want to go to that first game because the second game is always right before the ACC tournament. And for our job, it just doesn't make sense. So I didn't want to go last year because the first game was at the Dean Smith. Like, I don't you know, there's no real benefit to that. I want to go and see them at Cameron in the best environment in college basketball right there with Fog Allen Fieldhouse. And so what's interesting is this will probably light North Carolina on fire. Our, our good friend Joe Ovius and, his, you know, his radio station will probably has content set for the next three or four days, no matter what. And rightfully so, because it's a discussion that I think for the betterment of that program, they really need to reconsider. 
their how they uh, they set up that venue. And uh, and credit to Roy, by the way, for just I am always in favor of coaches that just aren't afraid to just say something that needs to be said that's based in truth and not and not be afraid of their own fan base. And Roy knows that he's got plenty of support behind him as well. I guess I would say two things to that. Um, one is, you know, I, I, I'm assuming the explanation from the North Carolina administration is going to be those people pay a lot of money to sit really close to the court. And that is money that we need for this and that and whatever. So like, you know, I know everybody in, in uh, college athletics likes to pretend it's not a business, but ultimately it, it is a, uh, it is a business. And, you know, the, the, the best way to, to make as much money off of this business is to probably have the seating arrangements the way they have it right now. Um, Also, you know, schools around the country are not not without exception, but but there's a lot of examples of it are having a difficulty getting students to come to games now. Um, you know, the, the 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 generation that is in college right now, you know, grew up with iPhones and grew up with iPads and grew up with, you know, multi-screen experiences. And they don't tend to like to go to to sporting events maybe as much as, as my generation enjoyed as a, as a college student going to sporting events. So that's a, that's a real challenge like in general. And I, I wonder if it could – so, I, so I, I wonder if like one way to maybe help that would be to actually provide them with better seats and, and, mm-hmm. and, and say, hey, you can sit closer, you can be on the court, so on and so forth. Um, so I don't know, but that's something every university I think has to consider. Where are you going to put your students? How you know? And is it how do you balance trying to make as much money as possible with trying to create the create the best environment as possible? Because um, those two things probably run counter, they probably run counter to each other. Um, the other thing I would say is that you know after I just got through explaining on a college basketball podcast how college basketball is not as good as like a million other sports. Um, the one thing college basketball can do, because it can never have the star power of the NBA. It can never have the quality of play of the NBA. It can never have the shot making of the NBA. Um, but what it can do is create a better game experience than the NBA. Like, you, the, you, you will never go to an NBA arena. I don't care which one. O, you know, in Oklahoma City, uh, in Oakland to, to see the Warriors. There's, it, it doesn't compare to what, what it feels like when you're at Duke. It doesn't compare to what it feels like when you're – um, you know, at, at Allen Fieldhouse. And so that is the thing, maybe not the only thing, but is, it is a thing that college basketball trumps the NBA on. Like, okay, we, we can't have the same quality of play. We don't have the same star power. Um, we don't have the same shot-making ability. But, boy, we're going to turn this into a party. And so if I were a college administrator, again, while recognizing – you have to you have to balance uh, you know a budget and you I mean not necessarily balance a budget but you have to you have to mo- you have to make as much money as you as you possibly can in theory. Um, I would want to do whatever is reasonably possible to try to create the best f- game experience I could create because that is a massive part of college basketball. And if your Hall of Fame coach is chirping about it on national television after a big big game, um, it suggests that we we know exactly how Roy feels about that. I do want to wrap it. Back around to Indiana before uh, we move on. You mentioned that they have two wins unlike any other program in America, and that is true. They got two top ten Kimpom wins. They are also the only nationally ranked team with a sub-100 loss. And so when I was putting together the top 25-1 and one on Thursday morning, like I was really struggling with that because like they got better wins than anybody. They also have a worse loss than anybody. 
in the top 25 and one. And so I, I settled around thir- I, I think at 13. Um, and I don't know that that's popular with Indiana fans, but that is the type of team that becomes difficult to, to rank because uh, you can either focus on the wins and that looks like a top, you know, 10 team, maybe even top five, but that loss exists. You can't just pretend it didn't happen. And it, and literally nobody else in the top 25 has a sub 100 Ken Palm loss right now. Uh, but Indiana of course has that one at Fort Wayne. I want to talk to you about a column you wrote earlier this week. Um, Duke beat Michigan state that was in the ACC big 10 challenge. Um, handled them pretty easily. And by easily, I mean, it wasn't, uh, in question down the stretch. And so they extended their home non-conference winning streak to 130 games, which is just a remarkable number, made more so by the fact that second on that list right now is, what is it, Wichita State with 41. So they're, yeah. they're yeah, like, they're up, um, you know, what, what is that, 89, 89. games? 89, yeah. yeah. So they're up 89 games. They're 89 games ahead of their closest competition when it comes to non-league uh uh, home winning streaks and I saw some of the because I, I retweeted your column and I started getting uh, a lot of the replies that I'm sure you got which is of course it's they've won 130 they don't play anybody but I would just say even if you don't play anybody and by the way that's that's not true they don't play the toughest home non-league schedule in America but like they've beaten some good teams there um winning 130 in a row on anything is amazing and when they're when when you're 85 games ahead of literally everybody else in America like that's a pretty special accomplishment um, I, 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 other than the, you know, just being anti Duke, anti K everything to push back on that is, um, silly to me because like, if it were easy to do, somebody would probably be within 84 games of them. Yeah. This is a ridiculous streak. It was one of those things that, you know, the, the game happened. I knew I wanted to write something. I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to go. Duke injuries again. Uh, not really. And then just the stack comes up and I'm like, you know what? That number is just stupid. There is no reason why any program, no matter the competition, should go more than a decade and a half winning every damn home non-conference game. And by the way, there have been plenty of ranked teams. It's not been the toughest, but it hasn't been god-awful. Because of the ACC Big Ten Challenge, Duke, on an every-other-year basis, gets a ranked team to come to Cameron. they got to beat a good team, an NCAA tournament team, a team that in most years will go on to be a five-seed or better. That's no gimme. And by the way, they actually one of the closest that I didn't include in the piece. I think the closest they've come to actually losing was a couple of years ago when Vermont almost stole one in, in, in November at the beginning of the season. So that's a, there's a little bit of irony there. But I, to me, it's the most underrated aspect of Shashevsky's legacy because there are all these things on his resume. But for him to have done this, like they have not lost since Eric Barkley was in a St. John's uniform, and that went actually because Duke and St. John's have that uh, or have had that you know non-conference arrangement for for years and years and years. That was a late February game back in 2000. And that win actually propelled St. John's that year to be a two seed. They were not ranked at the time that they defeated Duke in that game. They were subsequently after that. And it really, uh, it really just pushed them onto a really high tournament seed. Um, and that was a, that was a really talented, talented Duke team. I mean, that was Jay Williams, Shane Battier, Carlos Boozer. Go ahead and look at that Duke roster in 99, 2000 really really ridiculously talented so yeah it was just to me it was worth pointing out because the fact that wichita state is the second closest a tremendous home court advantage and they're not they're not even the same solar system um i honestly don't know if we'll watch duke lose on its home floor in a non-conference game before mike krzyzewski retires um it would have to happen where either just an absolute fluke 
which we have no, you know, the Vermont thing was the closest thing to it. And that, you know, that was the Jabari Parker team, I believe. But otherwise, you'd you have to think that Krzyzewski would have a random down year in recruiting. Nothing to suggest that will happen to the to the point where, like, he wouldn't have a tremendous team and they'd get matched up against the big the best team in the Big Ten. That's, you know, has some uh, some experience under it and can go in and, and steal one. So for as long as Krzyzewski is there, I mean, this thing could hit 150. And if it does, that would take another three or four seasons. And Krzyzewski will probably, I would think, be there at least three more years. Um, but it would probably take it for it to hit 150 to get like some real serious run in pub again. But yeah, dude, I mean, it's just it's just dumb. Like, And by the way, he did this again. He did this from 83 to 95. They went like 90, 91 games or something like that. So his home win percentage and I could not find I, I looked I couldn't find I'm sure Duke has it in their records but Krzyzewski's home win percentage in non-conference at Cameron it's legit it legitimately might be like 99 percent like has only lost dude like eight nine games ever since he's coached at Duke I mean it's just bonkers to think about and there are like Sells only lost nine games total ever at Allen Fieldhouse uh, Calipari's I think only lost four games at Rupp since he got there so don't get me wrong like there are certain blue bloods that with the right coach in, 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 in that venue and those programs, you're going to almost always win non-conference home games. A lot of that's the competition you play. But the fact of the matter is, is you go, we're almost at 17 years without getting beat once. It's mind boggling. It seems like I remember, cause I was trying to like, I, and I don't even know why I remember this other than I, I feel like I was watching the game and it's possible. I'm completely making this up. Didn't Rhode Island push him with Jimmy Barron one time. I feel like, like Jimmy went for like 30. <laughs> Hold on, I'm gonna look it up. I'm gonna look up right now as as you're talking. I'm gonna try and find this for you right it, now. It, it, it so you like, might be right. I have a memory. Good old Jimmy Barron. This would have been like five, six years ago. Hold on one second. It, it feels check like I have a memory like of a Sunday afternoon game of Jimmy Barron in Rhode Island, like almost going in there, and Jimmy was just balling. And you know, they obviously didn't win it, but it feels like I'm, I. Rem, it feels like that's not something I'm making up, but I might be making that up. <laughs> You might be. I don't know. I'm looking. I'm looking for Jimmy Barron right now because Jimmy Barron was a baller. Um, but it's it's possible. Uh, here's Barron. He played at Rhode Island. Uh, well, he was at Canisius first. He was at Rhode Island. Oh, he was only at Rhode Island in 2011, 2012, and that year, no, that's not it. He was he played for his dad only one year, which is surprising. I know he transferred to Canisius along with him. Um, but yeah, Rhode Island was seven and twenty-four that year. <laughs> Did not. Did not no, face. no, no, you're looking at something wrong. Are you thinking Billy Barron? I'm thinking Billy, Billy Barron. Billy Barron, maybe. Billy Barron. No, no, that's no. It's I'm not. I'm not seeing it. So, it's but Jimmy there, Barron. No. It's Jimmy Barron, dummy. I've got it right here. Okay, what is it? Here's the lead. Me... November sixteenth, two thousand eight. Oh, so we're way back. Okay. I remember this. Duke watched as Jimmy Barron turned the second half into his personal shoot around. Finally, the Blue Devils put their best player in his put their best player in his face just in time to save their long home court winning streak. This was a long home court winning streak in November 2008. Cal Singler hit two free throws with 19.4 seconds left, and then stopped Rhode Island's top score down the stretch to lead Duke to an 82-79 win. Check this out on Sunday. It was Sunday. That's uh, an amazing call. Uh, let's yep. see what let's see what Billy ended up with or Jimmy ended up with here. Uh, John Shire, shout out to John Shire, shout out to Devin Downey. John Shire had twenty three points. He's now a Duke assistant, of course. Um, he had twenty three. Where is Jimmy's? 
What did Jimmy have? Uh, can I get the Jimmy? Box? Can I get the box score? That Duke team had Singler, Gerald Henderson, Shire, Nolan Smith was a sophomore, Greg Paulus was a senior on that team, Zubek was on that team, Miles Plumley. That was the 08 09. Okay, so he only had 24 in the game, um, but he had 21 in the second half. So he had 21 in the second right. half, and he had eight three pointers, and uh, finished with 24. And he had he had Duke on the ropes. And let me see if I can find that sentence. I was just looking at it. It said like uh, Duke extended its non-league home winning streak to whatever it was, like 62 games. It's non-conference. Oh. Yeah, 62. So it was their NCAA best 62nd straight non-conference victory at Cameron Indoor Stadium. That streak is still going today, and this story was written November more than doubled since November sixteenth, two thousand eight. How about that? Oh. How about that? I can't even remember all of my cousins' names, and I just I just remembered a a Jimmy Barron game at, at Cameron Indoor from two thousand. That's a great that's a great poll right there. Thank Good you. stuff. I have no memory of that game, but I wasn't covering the sport nationally with that call. That's a great call. I, I can even remember I was in a hotel room somewhere. Like where, like where? I don't know why. I just remember being in a hotel room and watching that game and thinking, "Oh wow, Jimmy Barron's about to beat Duke." Then of course he didn't beat Duke because nobody, uh, except ACC teams, and that rarely happens. But nobody except ACC teams are allowed to win uh, in Cameron Indoor. You can't do it if if you're non-league. That's how they got to 130 straight and counting. Meantime, uh, uh, West Virginia created 40 turnovers against Manhattan the other night. 40 turnovers in 40 minutes. I don't want to spend long on this, but it's just. Like, you don't see that. We watch basketball every night. You don't see people go 40 turnovers in 40 minutes. And um, the most interesting thing uh, is just that, you know, Hugs was 61 years old and incredibly successful and completely changed his style of play, which is something like, I, can you think of another coach who's ever done that? Uh, at this stage, no. In terms of just pure, like, here's the system I've run. I'm going to blow it up and change it and and then continue to have success. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, not I at that age. I mean, I don't know if, if Larinaga, I don't feel like what Larinaga did at Mason and then what he brought to Miami was enough of a, of a giant shift where there was enough success there. But so I think it is rare. And I don't think you can understate how ridiculous it is to turn over a Division One team 40 times in a game. I don't know how many times it's happened ever in D1 history. GPD, I mean, do we have? I, I was talking to you at Slack. Yeah, like, how I, many- I did all every Google search you could do. It, 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 I couldn't pinpoint it, but there was some like – I didn't write it because I couldn't confirm it. But right. there was some like message board stuff that suggested the record's actually 51 turnovers in a 40-minute game. Um, I, I can believe that because I can believe from like in the 40s, 50s, and 60s there could have been some insanely stupid things because sometimes in every sport – you go back more than half a century and something absolutely dumb happened and it's like a record that will never be broken. But in modern college basketball with these athletes, to turn their team over 40 times is insane. And as you're saying here, just like credit to Hugs. That's a story that really, you know, will probably start to get more run if West Virginia is really good again this year and they continue to win with this press Virginia style. Well, Hugs has got his 800th career win coming up. You know, it's going to happen this month, at which point it might be a good time. If you're another college basketball writer listening to this, don't steal it from me. Might be a I good think time. it's yours. I think this is you, GP. Absolutely. It might be a good time to just because you have to understand. I grew up watching hugs. Like you know, he was, you know, it was the Great Midwest Conference. I grew up outside of Memphis, and I'd watch Memphis and go to Memphis games. And he coached those Bearcats, and you know, he'd bring Nick Van Exel into 
Memphis and Nick Van Exel would beat the hell out of Memphis. Do you, do you know the Nick Van Exel Memphis story? Yeah, you've told it on the podcast actually so good. before. It's my favorite Nick Van Exel story. Uh, I'll give you the quick version for people who didn't hear it before. He comes back in like playing with the Lakers or the Nuggets or whomever uh, after the Grizzlies uh, become the Memphis Grizzlies, and they're playing in the Pyramid, which is the same place Nick Van Exel uh, would have played when he was a Cincinnati Bearcat. And he walks in the Pyramid as a visitor getting ready to play the Grizzlies that night, looks up in the rafters and says to just somebody randomly who works at the arena, I can't believe they don't have my number retired in this place because <laughs> he because he used to he used to kill the Tigers. I think it was his team that beat Penny Hardaway's team four times. Four to beat they Cincinnati beat Memphis twice in the regular season in the Great Midwest Tournament and then in, in the Elite Eight of the NCAA tournament beat them four times in one uh, season. And now Nick Van Axel, how about this assistant coach for the Memphis Grizzlies? But anyway, Hugs like about to get his 800th career victory. Um, and it's just remarkable to scrap your successful way of doing things at the age of 61 for a totally new style and then have it work fabulously. Uh, two years ago, they, they were number one in defensive turnover percentage. Last year, number two. Right now, they are number one again. So that's something to keep a, an eye on going forward. And uh, before we get out of here, I, I do want to wrap up with um, a preview of this weekend's big, big game, which is – uh, Kentucky UCLA at Rupp Arena. It's going to be on CBS. I think tip offs at twelve thirty Eastern, so it's an early game, and it's big for a variety of reasons. One is two top ten teams, two undefeated teams. It's two big brands. I mean, it's UCLA Kentucky, both undefeated, both ranked in the top ten. So that's the easy surface level. You should watch this game, uh, but then there's a whole other thing going on, which is what is it? Maybe three top ten picks in this. Lonzo Ball, who has been uh, phenomenal at UCLA, is averaging nine yeah, point, nine point five assist. Per game right now, which leads the nation. Um, I don't know if you saw his Wednesday night box score, but he barely took any shots. I think he took three shots Wednesday night, um, but had 13 assists. So he's averaging nine and a half now, leading the nation. Uh, most people have him projected as a lottery pick, but I don't think going as high as some people caught up in the Lonzo Ball hysteria uh, assume, because I, I've spent the past 24 hours like you know texting and talking with some some NBA front office people that that I have relationships with and. I can't find any of them that think he'll go number one in the draft. Like, none. And that's starting to be talked about a little bit. Like, Lonzo Ball might not go number one. I can't find anybody to tell me he might go number one. Um, some people say they would consider him along with five or six other guys. But ultimately, his, his, what is believed to be a lack of athleticism at that position is, is, is probably going to make him, I would assume, uh, probably will go more like five to ten in the draft as opposed to one to four in the draft. Either way. Like, we'll worry about that in June. Right now, he's an awesome college basketball player. Uh, so he's going to be on national television. Then you get Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox, who are fabulous. Like, one of the – I mean, I, I think, I think you know, we might look back someday, depending on what they become, but certainly what they're being right now, and go, that was one of the most talented backcourts in, in, in modern college basketball history. You know, obviously, Cal had that John Wall, Eric Bledsoe thing, and that was awesome, too. Uh, but we're talking about two high-level, not only players, but prospects, guys who are probably going to go you know, top 10, certainly in the lottery. You would think in the lottery, both of them. Um, so you turn on your television uh, on Saturday, and not just any channel, but to CBS, America's Most Watched Network, Network Stars, and you're going to have uh, Alonzo Ball, Bryce Offord backcourt against the De'Aaron Fox, Malik Monk backcourt. Like, that's pretty good. Really interesting game. This is a game that uh, will obviously have, uh, yeah, a, a relatively good national audience here. Um, 
you know, college football has, has died off to a certain extent. We've got the championship games on Friday and Saturday in the sport. Those will be big, but yeah, college hoops has, I mean, that's the centerpiece game. UCLA at Kentucky. Let's remember how Kentucky uh, just rolled UCLA a few years back in the CBS Sports Classic. Um, and, you know, they've, they've met since then, but this is really a good chance for Alford to maybe get some redemption. It's, it's a tough ask to win and rup. Uh, you know, Cal Perry's only lost four times there since he's gotten to Kentucky. Dude, he's so, in his eighth year, and he's lost four times in Rupp Arena. And that's not four non-league. That's four, period. Four, period. Yeah, no, it's it's extremely, extremely impressive. And I do think Kentucky will win. I would like to see if – because UCLA's got a lot – listen, uh, they, they've got a really talented team overall. I mean, Thomas Wells has stepped up and been good. I think last night during that game against Riverside – Isaac Hamilton put up a season high. T.J. Leaf is a talented freshman. They've got dudes. Okay, so they have the capability, I think, to match up with Kentucky. Um, let's just see if they can you know, stay composed for 40 minutes and make it close and interesting. I would like to see that. By the way, and just in general for Saturday, real quick, it's a, it's a terrific college basketball Saturday because you have uh, Gonzaga taking on Arizona, Xavier at Baylor. Uh, that's a tremendous game that will – certainly have uh, plenty of meaning for those non-conference resumes. Baylor with a win there would indisputably, while Indiana would have the two best wins, Baylor unquestionably have the best resume in all of college basketball to beat Xavier. Um, another one to keep an eye on is West Virginia at Virginia. Virginia almost got clipped by Ohio State on Wednesday night. They pulled it out. I, I'm just interested to see how they're going to handle. Those are two tremendous defensive teams, GP, and, and their schemes and philosophies are so, so very, very different. So that is just a, a really intriguing watch overall. Then you've got like Oklahoma at Wisconsin. Can OU go in and steal it? That might be tough, but it's interesting at least. And uh, those are kind of the most high-profile games overall. But yeah, UCLA-Kentucky is the big one. I'll take Kentucky to win, but this could be, and I hope it is, a game where we just, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten highlights, just like, oh my God, did you see that Lonzo Ball play? You know, Bryce Alford's got the biggest stones on the floor. Malik Monk, you know, maybe goes five or seven from deep. De'Aaron Fox, you know, goes for, you know, something close to another triple-double again. We'll see. Um, very entertaining and well-timed for the sport. Uh, Ken Palm has it projected as a Kentucky victory, obviously, by a score of 90 to 80. So let's put a 10-point spread on it. Mm. Kentucky minus 10, what are you doing? That's a good question. Uh, Thank you. Cause... I get paid to answer <laughs> questions. Oh, boy. Um... 10-point spread, UCLA at Rupp. UCLA's good, man. Uh, I'll take UCLA to cover, Kentucky to win. 90 to 80, by the way. I mean, it should be well-octane, high-octane. Um, yeah, I'll say Kentucky 86-81. Dude, Kentucky just beat a Power 5 team by 46 points. I don't think I'm not sure anybody can stay single. I don't. I, don't. I know that was ridiculous, by the way. How, but Arizona's not Arizona State's not that good. Dude, I don't but care. There's, there's, just there's, for the record, that was that was stupid. Like it was good, crazy how good not, they looked. Good teams play not good teams every night. They don't lose by 46. Jesus Christ. No. I mean, I know. <laughs> like I, 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 I'm. I wonder. I don't know that anybody outside of a consensus top five team that I would trust to stay within single digits of Kentucky and Rupp Arena right now. It's fair. Okay, so right now, you know, GP's got to put $1,000 of his. That's couch cushion money for you, I understand. But $1,000 right now, you're going to take Kentucky to cover. i take Kentucky minus 10, yeah. Okay. I just, right. I mean, they're so, I mean, you know UCLA. It's fair. It's absolutely yeah. fair. UCLA's going to get up and down the court with them. 
So there's going to be, you know, a, a bazillion possessions in this game. And just at some point, you know, th- those Kentucky kids are just going to start getting runouts and dunking. And, you know, uh, the only like the only thing that would keep UCLA around, I think, is for UCLA to get hot from the perimeter and Kentucky to be ice cold from the perimeter, which, by the way, is possible because if you're looking for something that Kentucky's not good at, it is shooting from the perimeter. They're right now shooting 32.3% from three-point range. That ranks 233rd in the country. So just think about that, though. They're the obvious number one team in America, undefeated, beating everybody's brains in, and they can't make a three-point shot. Like, that's how much it doesn't matter. Now, it will matter at some point, probably in the NCAA tournament, um, but when you are pounding people like this and you're not relying on the three-point shot at all, in fact, it, it, the three-point shot's hurting you, you're really just overwhelming people physically, athletically, and in every way. I dig it, man. I dig it, man, too. Now, let's wrap it up here. My son's my son's actually <laughs> <laughs> my son's sitting in his crib awake from his nap, but he's not crying, which is good. Remember, so, uh, you can subscribe to the Iowa College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. That's the best way to get the latest episodes as quickly as possible. So please, like seriously, go subscribe to the podcast. So, uh, you, you'll just get them as quickly as possible. Why wouldn't you want them as quickly as possible? Thank no you. reason. There's no reason. To not do it is, is dumb. Uh, thank you sincerely for listening. We always appreciate that. We will talk to you again uh, early in the week. Till then, take care.